Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for November 7th through 13th, 2022. This is covering Hosea 1 through 6 and 10 through 14, and also the book of Joel. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hey, scriptures. Looking great. And now let's consult the Scripture Manic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 40 minutes, 13 seconds. Well, that's a good chunk of time compared to what we've done, but what would it be daily? Five minutes, 44 seconds. Yeah, that's so doable. Now, there are not a lot of chapters that are left out of the reading for Come Follow Me, but if you want to include Hosea chapters 7 through 9, so reading all of Hosea and all of the book of Joel, it will take you 48 minutes, 50 seconds, or 6 minutes, 58 seconds every day for a week. Oh, that's so easy to do. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it section by section, or buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. So let's start with the book of Hosea. Right. I know Hosea. He was the prophet who lived right after Daniel, right? Well, no. he. Well, that's the order of the prophets, right? I mean, first there was Isaiah. Right. Then but... there was Jeremiah. Well, that's true, but... And then there was a prophet named Lamentations. Now, see, that wasn't the name of a prophet. Then Ezekiel. I think I see the problem here. Then Daniel. Yes. Then Hosea. Okay, First of all, there's no prophet named Lamentations. Well, I had an uncle named Lamentations. No, you didn't. Well, then who wrote his book? The book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. We talked about this in episode 42. Well, okay, to be fair, I wasn't really listening in episode 42. (laughs) Okay. Second, we've been studying the section of the Old Testament called the Prophets or the Nevi'im. These books are not in chronological order. They're not? No. It's true that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all lived after the time of Isaiah, but they also lived at about the same time as each other. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were contemporaries. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Ezekiel and Daniel were in Babylon. Ezekiel preached to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, and Daniel was in the royal court in Babylon but they lived around the same time as each other. The book of Daniel starts a subsection of the prophets, or Nevi'im, called the Twelve, referring to the Twelve Minor Prophets. They're called Minor Prophets because their books are nowhere near as long as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In fact, in the Hebrew Old Testament, called the Tanakh, the writings of these Twelve Prophets are combined into just one book. You know, I bet we could learn more about that by watching our video, How We Got the Bible. We could. Maybe we should include a link to that video in the description. We will. Okay. But these 12 books are not in chronological order. Some of the prophets lived earlier and some lived later. Some preached to the northern kingdom of Israel. Some preached to the southern kingdom of Judah. And some preached outside Israel altogether. So we'll need to go over a little background on each one before we study them so we can better understand their teachings in a proper timeline. That sounds good. Let's start with an introduction from the seminary manual. It says, Hosea prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel near the end of the reign of Jeroboam II. 
Hosea was a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah, Amos, Jonah, and Micah. Hosea probably died before the accession of Pekah in 736 BC, for he makes no allusion to the Syro-Ephraimatic War, nor to the deportation of the northern tribes by Tiglath-Pileser two years later. Hosea was one of the few prophets in the northern kingdom of Israel who left written prophecies. After the fall of the northern kingdom, writings by and about Hosea evidently were collected and preserved in the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're lucky to have them. Yes, we are. So let's start with Hosea chapter 1. This book is filled with metaphors, and God uses object lessons to try to reach the people. It might also be helpful to note that at the time of his ministry— The northern kingdom of Israel had formed alliances with other nations, and many Israelites were practicing idolatry, including rituals that violated God's law of chastity. With that in mind, look at the unusual thing God asks Hosea to do. Starting in verse 2, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, For the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. Now, many different theories or interpretations have been put forth regarding whether this really happened, whether it was metaphorical in vision, or whether it has some basis in a past experience Hosea had. Whatever the case we should be looking for the intent of the author. And that seems to be for us to pay attention to the lessons God is teaching through this situation, whether it is literal or figurative. We'll share some inspired thoughts by Henry B. Eyring in just a bit. But for now, notice that the Lord will use this marriage to teach the Israelites about his covenant relationship with them. The prophet will represent the Lord and Gomer will represent Israel. From the New Oxford Annotated Bible, it offers a couple clarifications. In verse 2, when it says wife of whoredoms, it means a promiscuous woman. Not necessarily that her life before she was married was a life of promiscuity, but that she will be promiscuous as a wife to Hosea. Also, verse 2 gives a phrase, children of whoredoms, and that means children that are born of promiscuity. This marriage relationship is a great way of looking at our relationship with God. We've made promises. Will we be true? Well, in verses 4 through 11, Hosea and Gomer had three children. The names of the children represented the consequences that the Israelites would suffer because of their sins. Remember how Isaiah's sons had prophetic names? This is the same type of thing. His children were Jezreel, meaning God shall sow or scatter abroad. This is representing the destruction of the house of Israel. It's in verse 4. Lo Ruhama, meaning not loved, not pitied, not having obtained mercy. This represents that God will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. But Judah will be saved by the hand of God, as it says in verses 6 and 7. And finally, lo am I, meaning not my people. Because as it says in verse 9, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. 
The Institute Manual provides this commentary. It says, Biblical names often were taken from the circumstances surrounding the child's birth. In Hosea's narrative, Gomer bore her husband three children, two sons and a daughter. The names given to the children symbolize the destruction that lies in Israel's future as a result of her idolatrous or adulterous ways. That is, children, or judgments, are the natural result of Israel's harlotry or unrighteousness. Yeah, that is just the kind of way of thinking about these stories that is so helpful. Remember that they have purpose in their narrative. They're not just telling you a story about what happened. This story is sculpted in a way and taught to us in a way to teach us something about the nature of God and the consequences that come from our actions. So that's really, really good clarification. But notice the pleading as well as the warning as we get into Hosea chapter 2. Let's start with verse 1. Say ye unto your brethren, Amai, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. Notice a great wordplay right here at the beginning. These words, the prophet declares, are name changes representing his pleading to redeem the people. Amai means my people. See the footnote. And Ruhama is loved or having obtained mercy. It's interesting that Hosea is referring to the second and third child as part of his redemption theme. Only the first child is specifically Hosea's child. The mention of Hosea's paternity related to the other two is conspicuously absent. Unlike Jezreel, those children, the last two, are called her children and the children of whoredom, as we see in verse 4. So in verse 1, say ye unto your brethren, Amai, notice that that refers to the child, lo, Amai, not my people. But in this case, he's saying, Amai, meaning my people. And the same with Ruhama. Previously, the name was Lo Ruhama, meaning not loved, not pitied, not obtaining mercy. But now he's saying to say Ruhama, meaning loved or having obtained mercy. So we take those concepts in those first names and say, let's switch it around. You can change. This is what I want for you. Let's continue on in verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. The Institute Manual offers this commentary. It says, The Lord's call to Hosea to take a harlotrous woman to wife represents the prophet's call to the ministry, a ministry to an apostate and covenant-breaking people. The children of this apparent union represent the coming of the judgments of the Lord upon Israel, warning of which was to be carried to the people by the prophet. The figure of the harlotrous wife and children would, I believe, be readily understood at the time by the Hebrew people. Hmm. So through Hosea, the Lord also explained the consequences that would come upon Gomer because of her actions. Let's go on in verse 5. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. So why was she unfaithful to Hosea? Notice how she trusted more in past lovers to supply her needs than in her husband, 
who she had entered into sacred covenants with. Do we ever find ourselves abandoning the Lord because we feel sinful behavior better meets our needs? Is that true? Or does it just feel easier but empty? Good question to ask. Now, Hosea continues to use symbolic language to describe the consequences the Israelites would suffer for breaking their covenant with God. Let's go on in verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. I find it interesting that her needs had been taken care of, like it says in verse 8, but she couldn't see it. Do we sometimes take for granted the great and sustaining blessings God gives us because we choose not to see them or properly appreciate them? Going on in verse 9, Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, and forgot me, saith the Lord. So if we violate our covenants with the Lord, we will suffer the consequences. But remember what we've been learning in the writings of the prophets. There is purpose in these consequences. In time, what they suffer would help the Israelites return to the Lord. He will not forget us even when we turn away from him and are not true to our covenants. Let's continue on in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. In other words, the husband will win back his wife and invite her to return. I just find great comfort in that, that God would love us enough to court us back even when we've rebelled. Going on in verse 15. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Going on in 17. For I will take away the names of Baalim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. Skipping to 19. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Skipping to 23. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, 
and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. How merciful and loving is our God. Even when we are unfaithful, he wants us back. Christ wants to reestablish his covenant with Israel and thereby bind his people to him. He has a much broader way of looking at our actions. He will continue to invite and entice us to be true to him so we can become all that we can become and he can bless us. There's a lot we learn about the character of God just in this analogy. Absolutely. As Jay read, Hosea is going to take away her corn and oil and wool, etc. And so you can see the punishments and judgments coming. But then what? Is he going to force Gomer to stay in his house and maybe lock the doors or whatever not? No, there's no coercion here. He is going to allure her. He is going to do all that he can to show her that he loves her still and that she should come back to him. And that brings us to chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver, and for an homer of barley, and an half homer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days, Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. So because he loved her, Hosea redeemed Gomer from bondage, as it mentioned in verse 2, and told her that if she would forsake her sins and remain faithful to her marriage covenant with Hosea, then Hosea would continue to love and care for Gomer as her husband, in spite of her previous sins. Hosea did for Gomer what the Lord does for all his covenant people who turn to him through repentance. As we promised, here's some insight from President Henry B. Eyring. This is from a talk given at a CES symposium on August 15, 1995. He says, quote, I had a new feeling about what it means to make a covenant with the Lord. All my life, I had heard explanations of covenants as being like a contract, an agreement where one person agrees to do something and the other agrees to do something else in return. For more reasons than I can explain, during those days teaching Hosea, I felt something new, something more powerful. This was not a story about a business deal between partners. This was a love story. This was a story of a marriage covenant bound by love, by steadfast love. What I felt then, and it has increased over the years, was that the Lord with whom I am blessed to have made covenants loves me and you with a steadfastness about which I continually marvel and which I want with all my heart to emulate. End quote. That is so great. What a good summary. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, when have I experienced the Lord's mercy and his love for me? How have I felt the Lord inviting me to return to him when I've sinned or been unfaithful to him? Going forward, let's summarize the coming chapters. 
In Hosea 4 through 11, Hosea called upon Israel to return to the Lord and serve him. Chapters 12 through 13 record that Hosea explained that the Lord uses prophets to guide his people. Hosea also taught that through the Savior, all people will overcome physical death. And in chapters 13 to 14, we read that Hosea taught the Israelites that their decision to be unfaithful to the Lord was the reason for their impending destruction. However, Hosea also extended a message of hope to them by teaching that in the last days, the Lord would heal them of their backsliding or apostasy when the people of Israel returned to him, as it says in 14 verse 4. So here's a sampling of verses to highlight themes in those chapters. Let's start with Hosea chapter 6 verse 1. Come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. Nice. How about chapter 8, verse 7? For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Or how about chapter 10, verse 13? Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. Nice. How about 13, verse 4? Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Very true. How about 13 verse 9? O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. That is so true. 14 verse 1. O Israel, Return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. How about one last one? 14 verse 5. I will be as the dew unto Israel. Now to clarify, in a land of little rain, dew gives life to the desert, as God's love gives life to us. Well said. Now the Institute Manual offers this additional insight from Elder Henry B. Eyring. This is from that same talk in 1995 to the church education system. He says, quote, The book of Hosea, like the writings of Isaiah, uses what seem to me almost poetic images. The symbols in Hosea are a husband, his bride, her betrayal, and a test of marriage covenants almost beyond comprehension. Here are the fierce words of the husband spoken after his wife has betrayed him in adultery. Here he quotes chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He goes on through verse 13 to describe the punishment she deserves, and then comes a remarkable change in the verse that follows. In verse 19 he says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. At that early point in the story, in just two chapters, Even my youngest students knew that the husband was a metaphor for Jehovah, Jesus Christ. And they knew that the wife represented his covenant people, Israel, who had gone after strange gods. They understood that the Lord was teaching them, through this metaphor, an important principle. Even though those with whom he has covenanted may be horribly unfaithful to him, he would not divorce them if they would only turn back to him with full purpose of heart. End quote. That's really beautiful. What an amazing book, Hosea, and so grateful that we have it. 
But now let's look at the next book in The Twelve called Joel. Let's get our introduction from the seminary manual. We do not know exactly when Joel lived and prophesied to the kingdom of Judah. He may have lived some time between the reign of Joash before 850 BC and the return of the tribe of Judah from captivity in Babylon. The book of Joel centers on prophecies that Joel made after the land of Judah was afflicted with a severe drought and a plague of locusts. These prophecies tell of many signs to precede the second coming of the Savior, especially a great outpouring of the Spirit upon all flesh. One fulfillment of this prophecy occurred on the day of Pentecost in New Testament times, when the Spirit of the Lord was poured out upon the multitude who heard the preaching of the Lord's apostles and understood the words in their own language. This event caused Peter to say, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. On the night of September 21, 1823, the angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith and quoted Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, saying that these prophecies would shortly be fulfilled. President Gordon B. Hinckley commented on the fulfillment of these prophecies. Quote, the era in which we live is the fullness of time spoken of in the scriptures, when God has brought together all of the elements of previous dispensations. From the day that he and his beloved son manifested themselves to the boy Joseph, there has been a tremendous cascade of enlightenment poured out upon the world. The vision of Joel has been fulfilled. End quote. Wonderful. Let's get into it. In Joel chapter 1. In the first 13 verses, Joel recounted the devastation brought on by a plague of locusts. One interpretation of this passage is that it symbolizes the destruction that would come from invading armies if the people did not repent. You can see that in verse 4. Footnote A indicates the invading or conquering armies are compared to four varieties or stages of growth of locusts. Let's take a look at verse 4. That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the cankerworm eaten, and that which the cankerworm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. Looking at what happened to Judah in Joel's day, many scholars feel that the palmer worm was a metaphor for the Assyrian-Babylonian invasions of the Holy Land. What these two empires left, the Medes and Persians ate during their invasions. Joel chapter 1 verse 4 can be seen as an example of the Hebrew dualism previously mentioned. A prophet may refer to one incident and also mean another. For example, the canker worm could also represent the invasions and suppression of the Holy Land by Greece under Alexander the Great and his successors. Then the caterpillar would represent the invasion that consumed Judah when she was overrun by Rome and eventually destroyed by Titus. These references seem also to apply to the coming battle of Armageddon, when armies from the north will gather and fight just before the millennium. Great insight. Let's keep going in verse 14. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. 
Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Now the day of the Lord here refers to the second coming of Jesus and the events preceding it. I find it interesting that for protection, the prophet gathers the faithful to the temple. Have you felt the temple as a place of protection against spiritual dangers? Let's take a look at a comment from Elder Richard G. Scott. This is from the October 2012 General Conference. He says this, quote, Do you want a sure way to eliminate the influence of the adversary in your life? Immerse yourself in searching for your ancestors. Prepare their names for the sacred vicarious ordinances available in the temple. And then go to the temple to stand as proxy for them, to receive the ordinances of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. As you grow older, you will be able to participate in receiving the other ordinances as well. I can think of no greater protection from the influence of the adversary in your life. Close quote. Nice. So let's go on to Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations." Let's include a quick quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. This comes from the October 1982 General Conference. He says, quote, We must not underestimate, however, the difficulty of the last days. Joel and Zephaniah both speak of the last days as being a day of gloominess. The coming decades will be times of despair. Why? Because, as Moroni said, despair comes of iniquity. The more iniquity the more despair. And unless there is widespread repentance, despair will both deepen and spread, except among those who have gospel gladness. End quote. Excellent. Now, in the coming verses, they describe the war and destruction that will occur and the gloom that some people will experience before the Savior's second coming. Let's pick it up in verse 11. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So, who can abide it? Let's look for the answer in the coming verses, starting in verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Check the footnote on that. The Joseph Smith translation renders that, and he will turn away the evil from you. Now, anciently, the Israelites would rend or tear their clothes as a sign of mourning. We've seen multiple examples of that as we've studied so far this year. 
Again, we see that the Lord doesn't just want outward expressions of sorrow, like rending our garments, as it mentions in verse 13, but for us to sincerely experience remorse for what we've done and feel a desire to repent. He wants a contrite heart, our whole heart. Doesn't knowing that God will be merciful and slow to anger help us want to sincerely repent? It does for me. Let's keep going. Verses 15 through 32, these verses describe some of the blessings that the righteous will enjoy while preparing for the day of the Lord. Here's a great promise starting in verse 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. From his book Doctrines of Salvation, Joseph Fielding Smith offers this insight. He says, quote, Now, my brethren and sisters, I am not going to confine this prophecy to the members of the church. The Lord said he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. This means that the Lord would pour out his blessings and his spirit upon all people and use them to accomplish his purposes. There has never been a step taken in discovery or invention where the Spirit of the Lord was not the prevailing force resting upon the individual, which caused him to make the discovery or the invention. Close quote. I love that perspective. That's so great. Now, Joel also prophesies that signs and wonders will precede and accompany the day of the Lord, such as, in verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Now, is this scary? What should we do if we fear the events of the second coming? Let's take a look in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. The Come Follow Me manual includes this great quote to go along with these verses. It says, You might ponder these words from President Russell M. Nelson, quote, In coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost, end quote. That was from April 2018 General Conference. I love that quote. I use it a lot. Wonderful. Let's go now to Joel chapter 3. In this chapter, Joel prophesies of the Battle of Armageddon, which will occur just before the second coming. In this battle, all nations of the earth will fight against the Lord's people. But there is hope. Let's look for it in verse 16. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So wherein is hope? It's in the Lord. It is in the Lord. And his power to save and redeem. 
Now, if you're interested in more on the topic of the Battle of Armageddon and various events leading up to the Second Coming, we've recommended this article before. We'll do it again. In the second volume of the Old Testament Student Institute Manual, there are various articles called Enrichment Sections, and this one is called The Battle of Armageddon, A Prophetic View. This is Enrichment I. It's a really wonderful tour through the scriptures that relate to the Second Coming, both Old Testament and New. It states right in the article that this isn't a for sure how this all goes together. It's meant to be a study tool, but I think it's a wonderful starting point for the study of that time period. So if you're interested in it, I recommend that. We'll put a link to it in the description of the video. Well, what an amazing set of lessons we've learned from these two prophets. Absolutely. And I hope that we can look more carefully at ourselves, have some introspection as we read, and wonder in what ways we may have been unfaithful to the Lord, in small ways, in large ways. But remember, we can come back. The Lord wants us back to keep our covenants with him so he can bless us, so he can elevate us, so he can save us. And he has the power, the will, and the mercy to do so. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>